Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. On this month's episode number 33 on oncologic emergencies, we have with us Dr. Joel Yaffe and Dr. John Foote. Dr. Yaffe is an emergency physician at the University Health Network in Toronto. He's the Assistant Director of Education in the Department of Emergency Medicine at UHN and an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Toronto. He's the Director of the University of Toronto's Annual Update in Emergency Medicine Conference in Whistler, BC. Dr. John Foote is an emergency physician at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. He's the program director for the CCFPEM Emergency Medicine Fellowship Program at the University of Toronto. Oncology is an ever-expanding and changing complicated specialty with hundreds of types of neoplasms, a huge list of medications with all kinds of important side effects, which can be overwhelming for the ED doc. Of course, we don't need to know all the details of these huge lists, but it is important for us to be comfortable with a few key cancer-related diagnoses. Why? Well, cancer is the second leading cause of death in North America, and people are living longer and longer with cancer, and we're seeing an increasing use of chemotherapy and bone marrow transplantation. So we're taking care of more and more of these patients in the ED. Now, some of you might be thinking that most of these patients have such a poor prognosis to begin with that what we do in the ED doesn't really matter. However, the overall five-year survival rate of Canadians diagnosed with cancer is more than 60% and is increasing every decade. Of course, the patients that end up in the ED are sicker than the average cancer patient, but still, most of the cancer patients you see in the ED can have significant quality years of life, especially if you can identify and manage their cancer-related emergency effectively. What I'd like to do in this episode is simplify the vast territory of oncologic emergencies into five simple presentations with a couple of diagnoses to think about for each presentation so that you have a framework to refer to next time you see that complicated post-chemo cancer patient. The five presentations of cancer patients that by the end of this episode should trigger a few key cancer-related diagnoses in your mind besides the usual stuff that we see in the non-cancer patient are first, fever, that is febrile neutropenia. Second, shortness of breath, and this includes things like malignant pericardial effusion and superior vena cava syndrome. Thirdly, altered mental status, including cancer-causing raised ICP and hyperviscosity syndrome. Fourthly, acute renal failure, including cancer-obstructing post-renal failure and tumor lysis syndrome. And lastly, back pain, and this is usually spinal mets, Now, this one we covered in detail in episode 26 on back pain with Dr. Himmel and Dr. Steinhardt, so we won't be going into detail about it this time around. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce, again, back to EM Cases, Dr. John Foote. Welcome. And Dr. Joel Yaffe. Welcome, Joel. All right. Let's get going. We're going to start on the first case here. The first case is that of a 43-year-old woman from home with a known advanced breast cancer. She comes to your ED complaining of belly pain associated with vomiting and fever for 10 days after receiving her second cycle of adjuvant chemotherapy. 
She's two months post-mastectomy. Her abdominal pain is diffuse, 4 out of 10, that started 24 hours prior with a gradual onset associated with 8 bouts of vomiting. She has no other medical problems and has never had any surgery besides the mastectomy. The emesis is non-bilious and without blood. On review of systems, there's nothing else significant. On exam, she appears well and in no apparent distress. She has a temp of 38.5 and a heart rate of 110. The rest of the vitals are normal. Her white blood cell count is 0.9 with a neutrophil count of 0.2. The chest x-ray shows no infiltrate. So Dr. Foote, in patients with cancer in general, and this patient in particular, what are some of the causes of fever that we should be thinking about? The approach to fever in these patients will be kind of similar to a regular patient on eMERGE in the sense that the differential for fever is not always infection. Um, there can be medication, there can be autoimmune issues that can cause this. The main priority is to make sure that there's no serious bacterial infection primarily in these patients. The other parts on the differential, as you mentioned, could be things like the tumor burden from tumor necrosis. Um, tumors themselves can cause fever independent of infection. A lot of these patients will have had recent transfusions, and one of the known side effects of transfusion can be a, a fever, usually from people who've had prior transfusions and exposure to white blood cell antigens. Obviously, medication itself, certain medications that can directly cause fever. Thought should be given to pulmonary embolus that can cause a, a low-grade fever. Generally, if the temperature is above 38.5, that risk goes down significantly. Two-thirds of these febrile neutropenic patients end up having an infection. And that should be our fallback position, I think, to say with confidence that this fever is due to something else would be difficult and a risky thing to do. So while the majority of patients with cancer present with fever do have a serious infection, most of those being bacterial, we do need to think about the possibility of things like transfusion reaction, medication side effects, PE, and that kind of thing. And then there's all the other causes of fever, toxicologic, and thyroid storm, and all that that we need to think about. Withdrawal, sympathomimetics, anticholinergics, um, ASA overdoses, a long list differential for um, acute fever in the eMERGE. But I think that within this population, we need to think primarily of infection because they're obviously at high risk. And at least 30% will be actually bacteremic at the time of their presentation. Right. And so with, I guess, with infection, time is of the essence right. in terms of treatment. So that's the most important from an emergency perspective. Dr. Yaffe, in terms of febrile neutropenia, can you just review for us what the definition is and why sure. the neutrophil count is so important in these patients? Well, the Infectious Disease Society of America published their 2010 guidelines. It's probably the authoritative work that deals with uh, febrile neutropenia. Their definition of fever is a patient who has a single oral temperature greater than 38.3 or a temperature greater than 38.0, which is sustained over a one-hour period. And neutropenia is defined as an absolute neutrophil count less than 0.5. In SI units, it's 10 to the ninth per liter or a count less than 1.0 with an expectation that that count's going to drop to below 0.5. So below 0.5 is the time when these people start to really become at risk for a serious bacterial infection. It is important to remember that some patients who are neutropenic and have bacterial infection will not have a fever when they present to the emergency department. So if a person has documented a temperature greater than 38.3 at home, uh, even if they're afebrile when they present, they should be considered to and be treated as a febrile neutropenic. 
In addition, if you have a person who comes in who's really just unwell, but hasn't recorded a fever, they may also have a serious underlying bacterial infection. Okay, and in terms of the neutrophil count, why is the neutrophil count so important and what does it tell us about how sick these patients can be? So the risk of bacterial infection increases directly in relationship to the the drop in the nucle- or the absolute neutrophil count and it also increases to the in the duration uh, that the neutrophil count is low. So patients who have very low counts for prolonged periods are at the higher risk. The classic is somebody who you know is going to have a count less than 0.1 for greater than seven days is at very, very high risk of getting bacterial infection. Traditional chemotherapy will stun all the elements in the bone marrow. And the reason we see neutropenia as being an issue is because the neutrophils have the, the shortest half-life. And the timing of the neutropenia from the chemo, is, you know, usually it's not the day of or the day after. It's usually several days after while there's been time for those neutrophils to, to wear out in their, in their natural cycle. Um, so normally you'll see it five days up to two weeks, but you know, usually beyond two weeks post-chemo you don't see it that often, and usually the first day you don't see it. So that sometimes helps people to think of the timing of when it will happen. There's multiple factors that put the chemotherapy patient at risk for infection. A neutropenia is a good marker, but these people have altered cell-mediated immunity and they have disruption in their uh, intestinal mucosa. So there's other factors, but certainly a neutropenia itself is a marker. So, Dr. Foote, you had mentioned that uh, the timing post-chemo is important. Which cancer patients are at highest risk for developing febrile neutropenia? There are disease-specific risk factors, which I think are beyond our ability, but certainly you can look at risk going into it based on the type of cancer that the person has and the type of chemotherapy. But having said that, if you look at things that we can easily look at in the emergency department, we should be looking at the absolute neutrophil count. Uh, We should be looking at host factors. So people who have indwelling lines, uh, people who have mucositis, people who have significant comorbid conditions, if you put those together in a patient with uh, neutropenia, the risk increases. And that really has impact on how we approach these patients and how we do our physical exam. If you wanted to know what do you look for in a person who comes in with neutropenia, we should be doing a targeted physical exam. So the usual suspects, the chest and the abdomen and cardiovascular exam, but very important in these patients is a skin exam. You want to be looking for abscesses, evidence of herpes simplex or herpes zoster, check the perineum, look at IV sites, look at sites of indwelling catheters, and look at the oropharynx for evidence of mucositis and thrush. Having said that, many, probably most patients will not have identifiable signs of infection or an identifiable source. Yeah, these patients can be tough because they often present with with subtle signs. So some of the things on physical to look for, in particular with these patients, beyond the usual is skin, indwelling catheters, mucous membranes, looking for thrush. The other one is sinusitis. These patients can end up getting really sick from sinusitis, and almost all the patients we see with sinusitis otherwise have pretty benign disease. Dr. Yaffe, if if the febrile neutropenic cancer patient presents with belly pain, like in our case that I just presented, what diagnosis in particular do we need to think about beyond the usual causes of belly pain in, in patients who present to the ED? 
Abdominal pain in a, a neutropenic patient with a fever, even without a fever, should raise the specter of necrotizing enterocolitis, otherwise known as tiflitis. Tiflitis is, is a, a neutropenic enterocolitis of the bowel uh, involving the ileocecal region, but in fact, you can get this kind of inflammatory infection in any parts of the large or small bowel. So this is a condition likely related to uh, loss of integrity of the bowel wall in conjunction with neutropenia. You get translocation of bacterial flora and you get infection and damage to the wall of the gut. It's very serious. A lot of the data that is available on this entity is based from earlier earlier times when treatment wasn't as good. And I think in those days they recorded uh, mortality of 40 to 50%. The feeling these days is it's not that high. It's not common, but if you want to look at the group that it's most common in, and it's uh, patients with the hematologic malignancies, it can occur in transplant patients and in solid tumor patients as well. For our purposes, if you see a patient that comes in that's neutropenic and you're thinking appendicitis, you should be thinking tiflitis. In these patients, CT is going to be diagnostic, is the test modality of choice. People have talked about ultrasound, but really the evidence would suggest that CT is a better test. And if you have diagnosed or high suspicion of tiflitis, treatment is usual supportive therapy, IV, gut rest, NG tubes, and then you need to give antibiotics. You should get a surgical consult in these patients as well as a, a medical consult. Uh, they're going to need to be brought in and treated very aggressively. So any patient who presents with an appendicitis-looking picture who's immunocompromised, especially cancer, neutropenic fever, uh, you need to be thinking about necrotizing enterocolitis. And in these patients, you know, a lot of patients now we're doing ultrasound as our first line of imaging for patients with appendicitis. Uh, but in these patients, you'll want to go straight to CT rather than screen with a, an ultrasound first. The classic teaching is that this is kind of presents like a, a appendicitis, but anybody with abdominal symptoms, vague, or you can have diarrhea, bleeding, you have to consider a neutropenic uh, enterocolitis in these patients. One thing that we see that's missed in our ER occasionally is that um, I don't see a lot of cases of tiflitis personally, but I do see a fair number of patients who are neutropenic without fever who have a diarrhea, acute diarrhea. And while that may be a symptom of uh, just from the chemo itself, it is an indication for empiric coverage with Fertigram negatives, Cipro specifically usually, as an indication to give these patients some antibiotics in the absence of fever and not necessarily just dismissing it as a chemotherapy side effect. I'm not saying that every patient on chemotherapy that has diarrhea needs to be on Cipro, but what I will say is that the oncologists do put patients with acute diarrhea who are neutropenic, they do put those patients on empiric ciprofloxacin. And we've had several M&M cases presented where there's been some criticism against emergency doctors for not doing that. And there have been some bad outcomes, and I don't think it's something that's commonly well known. The biggest pitfalls that I see with neutropenia, I mean, the diagnosis is delayed drawing of blood work. When these patients present a triage, the nurses should be aware that they should have blood work drawn quickly. Also, I will mention too, there sometimes can be a delay with your lab. When, they, when we draw the CBC, um, if the neutrophil count is low, you won't, we won't actually see that. It will actually be doing a manual count. And it can sometimes take two hours to get back the actual neutrophil count. So Dr. Foote, we're talking about cancer patients in this episode, but occasionally we'll get patients 
who do not have a diagnosis of cancer who come in with febrile neutropenia, should the approach to these patients be similar to the approach we have in cancer patients with febrile neutropenia, or should these patients be treated like anyone with a fever? That's a good question, Anton. There are patients who have acquired or inherited reasons for having neutropenia, and for some reason these patients don't seem to have as much incidence of serious bacterial infections as the febrile neutropenic oncology patients. Primarily they think that this is because the oncology patients also often have impaired barrier defenses in their mouth or their rectum. The, the chemotherapy makes them more permeable to bacteria, more at risk for bacteremia than, than the non-chemotherapy neutropenic patient. That being said, obviously the neutropenic patient still is at risk. Uh, there are neutropenic patients who are actually septic, and they are neutropenic because of their sepsis. So it, this would apply to a patient that doesn't look terribly well. And Dr. Yaffe, Dr. Foote had mentioned about febrile neutropenic cancer patients having decreased barrier in the mouth and in the rectum for bacteria. There's this notion that doing a digital rectal exam or checking for a rectal temperature in a patient with febrile neutropenia can precipitate bacteremia. What's the truth in this? Is it okay to do digital rectal exams in these patients? You know, let's say they, they come in with some bloody diarrhea or, you know, for whatever reason you feel that a digital rectal exam would be a helpful thing to do. Are they really at risk for precipitating bacteremia? So the teaching has been that the digital rectal exam can traumatize rectal mucosa that may already be friable and then facilitate access of gut bacteria to the bloodstream. I have to say I'm not aware of any definitive trials on the subject, but I would say also that... I really can't think of an instance when a digital rectal exam is going to provide me important information in this patient population. So I think that I would defer a digital rectal exam, and that's what a lot of people recommend. That does not mean that we don't do a good exam and check the perineum and look at the perianal region for abscesses. But putting a finger in, I can't imagine that that's going to provide useful information. If a patient presents neutropenic fever and they've got rectal pain and you look and you don't see anything, the likelihood is that regardless of what you may or may not find on a digital rectal exam, you're going to go on and do some imaging studies to define whether there's an infective process in the rectal pericolonic area. So your CT scan is probably going to be a lot more informative than your finger is going to be in this particular case. Let's move on to the workup of febrile neutropenia. What can you tell us about uh, the workup for patients with febrile neutropenia? We would call this almost a partial septic workup. Everybody obviously needs two sets of blood cultures, urine cultures. Everybody should have a chest x-ray, even in the absence of specific pneumonia symptoms, because a, a sizable percentage of these patients will have pneumonia without physical findings or the typical symptoms of pneumonia. So the chest x-ray should be empiric for these patients. If there are signs of mucositis or sore throat, they should have a throat swab. If there are any things to culture on the skin, abscesses, pustules, they should be swabbed. That would also go for any kind of catheters or lines that may have discharge or look infected. They should all be cultured. The blood cultures, I should mention, should be at least one peripheral. If there are a central line or via portacath or pick line, they should also have a culture from that site as well. I will mention one thing about getting the initial white blood cell count 
sometimes there can be a bit of delay initiating this. When these patients present at triage, you emerge, and the nurses, the triage nurses, should have a way of identifying these vulnerable patients that should have blood work initiated at triage um, or very early in their process, meaning they shouldn't wait half an hour, an hour to see a doctor and then have the blood work done. Some places have mentioned that a goal of a door-to-needle time for antibiotics of 30 minutes for these patients. I think in, in, in reality that's a difficult goal to get even get a white blood cell count back or a CBC back from your lab is, is going to be challenging to do within 30 minutes of arrival. I should also mention too that when you send off the, the blood work, the nurses or you should be on the hematology lab to be getting that neutrophil count back fairly quickly because often the counts are very low and then there'll be a delay in getting them back because they have to be manually counted. So sometimes that can be a significant delay in actually getting the neutrophil count. So there should be good communication with the lab about getting these neutrophil count back quickly. So to add to our code strokes and our code STEMIs, we should have a code febrile neutropenia. Correct. Dr. Foote, you had mentioned the chest x-ray. When we get a chest x-ray for these patients looking for pneumonia, sometimes they don't even show an infiltrate because they don't have enough white cells to mount an inflammatory response unless they've had symptoms for more than a few days. Dr. Yaffe, since the chest x-ray is rarely positive, even if the patient has clinical signs and symptoms of pneumonia, is there a role for CT in these patients? I just want to back up a little bit and Slight disagreement with my colleague, Dr. Foote, but again, this is really important because a lot of what we're going to do and when we go forward, we're going to see that institutionally, people do things differently. The whole idea of doing a routine chest x-ray in febrile neutropenic patients is not universally considered to be something you need to do. So the IDSA guidelines would say you don't need to do a chest x-ray in the absence of symptoms. People have looked at it and said the yield in a person without symptoms is likely to be pretty low. Having said that, your point about a patient could have pneumonia and have a normal-looking chest x-ray is well taken. So if you have a patient who's got respiratory symptoms and you do a chest x-ray and you see nothing, uh, you could consider going on to do a CT scan. You're going to treat them for infection anyways. I think maybe the important issue is that people with pneumonia do less well than people without pneumonia. So if you're at a point where you're considering outpatient management and the person has some respiratory symptoms that you're uncomfortable with, it's probably prudent to do a CT before you discharge them. But by and large, I think the routine ordering of CT scans to to look for pneumonia is probably not something we need to do. I would say that there probably is no evidence, but I think that we're going to be referring a lot of these patients to our oncology or medicine colleagues, and I guarantee you they're going to get one from them. So I don't have a problem ordering it, and these are sick patients, so I I don't think a chest x-ray is an overly invasive investigation on these patients, so I would just, I've got bigger battles to fight than whether this person gets a chest x-ray in this, you know, an obviously sick patient. So we've got our febrile neutropenic patient, and we may or may not have done a chest x-ray, and we're at the point where we're ready to give antibiotics. Dr. Yaffe, what are the current recommendations for antibiotics in cancer patients with febrile neutropenia? So I like to keep things pretty simple. Unless there's been a prolonged fever unresponsive to treatment, what we're really looking for is bacterial infection and perhaps viral etiologies. So you want to do a quick assessment, get some diagnostic tests going, and get antibiotics on board. And again, keeping it simple, if you look at what bugs people grow, gram positives are more common 
but gram negatives are more serious. So you have to cover for both. And in gram negatives, you have to consider pseudomonas coverage. Some people quote a time frame for starting antibiotics. IDSA guidelines really say people should be treated swiftly and broadly with antibiotics for both gram positive and gram negative. So that gives us a little leeway. I think quoting hard times puts a little bit of expectations on us that we probably won't meet. If you look at the recommendations, there's all kinds of regimens you can use. But this is an area where it's probably good practice that your institution has a protocol and that everybody follows the same protocol so that everybody knows what they're doing. It's better for the nurses, better for the patients, better for follow-up. Uh, where I work, if a patient needs inpatient therapy, we give piperacillin tazobactam with or without an aminoglycoside. And then going on from there, you may want to add other antibiotics depending on what you found on your physical examination. Uh, if you think a person has line infections, then you would add vancomycin, and going on from there, once you get into sophisticated, specific infections, that may be a time when you want to call your ID or oncology people for some advice. The one more nuanced area is if you find skin infection, herpes zoster, herpes simplex, you probably want to add acyclovir coverage. If you're considering that a person might have encephalitis of unknown origin, you'd also want to add herpes simplex coverage in those cases. The other area where I would get help, or you should have a protocol if a person has a true penicillin allergy, because it gets trickier. Recommendations could be Cipro and Clinda, but really in these cases, you should be getting some advice. In the IDSA guidelines, they do talk about antifungal therapy. From the emergency doctor's perspective, what do we need to know about fungal infections and antifungal therapy in these patients? So my reading from the guidelines is that in a person who presents with an acute fever, stick to bacterial and maybe viral infections, whether or not they have thrush. I don't think we're looking at fungal coverage in those cases. The people you really want to worry about systemic antifungal therapy are the people who've had fevers for prolonged periods, for days, who've been unresponsive to antibiotic therapy. And in that group, again, that's a time to get some help because once you start systemic antifungal therapy, you're going down a a long and difficult road. Here I'd like to review the IDSA guideline antibiotic recommendations for cancer patients with febrile neutropenia. You need to think about antibacterials and antivirals in the emergency department and also antifungals. So let's talk about the antibacterials first. First, you should administer the antibiotics as soon as possible. Some suggested door-to-needle time of 30 minutes, but as Dr. Yaffe said, this might be a little bit unrealistic. For monotherapy, you want to go for something like Piptaz. Other options are Mirapenem or Imipenem or a Cephalosporin like Ceftazidime. They recommend adding Vancomycin for patients with low blood pressure, suspected line sepsis or mucositis, a history of MRSA colonization, or recent use of prophylactic antibiotics against gram-negative bacteria. They also recommend adding an aminoglycoside for gram-negative coverage in critically ill patients. If you do see evidence of a herpetic infection in a patient, in their skin or in their eye, they do recommend IV acyclovir. Dr. Foote's now going to talk about some other pearls when it comes to treating patients with febrile neutropenia in the emergency department. One little pearl for these patients, the febrile neutropenia, you're going to be doing your usual protocols if they are septic, you know, aggressive IV hydration. But a large percentage of these patients are, as part of their protocols, are on um, systemic steroids. 
And um, if they're on it for a reasonable amount of time, probably a week or more, they should get a stress dose of steroids, which usually would be the equivalent of two times their daily dose IV. So Dr. Foote, our febrile neutropenic patient that I presented had nausea and vomiting. Now, nausea and vomiting are very common symptoms in cancer patients we see in the ED. What do our listeners need to know about antiemetic choices in the cancer patient? Whenever I'm faced with a patient, even a, a patient who's not an oncology patient with vomiting, the, I try, try to avoid stampeding off to the GI system. That You've got to think of the underlying possible causes. There can be CNS problems, medication problems. There can be GI pathology obstruction, irritation. There could even, in an oncology patient, we should be thinking of metabolic problems like hypercalcemia. So there's a long list of things that could cause potential nausea and vomiting, so you should be aware of those, looking for the underlying cause. And then as far as the way to treat the symptoms, there are two main classes of medication you can use for this. The two main classes of antiemetics that we will give for these patients would fall into the anti-serotonergic family, which you may be familiar as with Odansetron is the generic name, Zofran would be the, the trade name that we commonly would give. And those I I primarily give to patients that have nausea from the chemotherapy itself. They tend to work more on the chemoreceptor trigger in the brain for nausea. One caution I would give with that class is they can cause QT prolongation. That's something you just should be aware of. If somebody already has a prolonged QT, those are relatively contraindicated. And a lot of these patients with vomiting also have hypokalemia, which can further prolong the QT interval. The other major class of antiemetics for these oncology patients that are vomiting would be the anti-dopaminergic type medications, which you would be familiar with as metoclopramide, procloperazine, haldol, olanzapine, and all those are, are good choices. I tend to use those for when there's a GI cause for their vomiting or if this is due to opioid side effects. They tend to be more specific for that. Now, this is all, a lot of this is theoretical and not evidence-based. In reality, you'll end up using probably a combination of these two agents, which is what I end up doing. One special note about the antihistamine type class of medications for nausea, which in Canada would be Gravol, which is dimethyldrenate or dimethyldramine. In the U.S., I believe it's Dramamine. Those can be used as well, but a just caution should be used in the elderly because they're anticholinergic, and these patients are relatively cholinergic deficient and um, can sort of precipitate delirium and confusion in some of these elderly patients. Yeah, I remember a day when we used Gravol for... Every hip fracture. Every patient that had nausea in the entire department or anyone that received any opiate got Gravol with it. And now we we should be giving metoclopramide primarily or, or the Zofran with that we often do. And it turns out in our merge, I can't believe it, but it's actually quite a lot less expensive than the Gravol that we've been giving... Dr. Yaffe, once you've established that a patient has febrile neutropenia, what distinguishes high-risk and low-risk patients? Their symptoms and signs are often so subtle and unimpressive that it sometimes makes it difficult to assess how sick they are. In other words, which patients with febrile neutropenia can be discharged from the emergency department? Okay, so the whole notion of identifying a low-risk group is, as you said, uh, we can identify a group of patients that we presume will do well with oral antibiotics given as an outpatient. The exercise is not as easy as it might sound. The starting point is you need to be aware of the way your institution does things. So if you're gonna consider sending a person home on outpatient management, uh, at the end of the day, their primary physician 
needs to be on board with that decision because they're going to have to follow up the patient. Having said that, there are some scoring systems that can be used in the initial phase of identifying low-risk patients. So there is a scoring system from MASC, which is the Multinational Association for Supportive Care and Cancer Patients. They have a risk index, uh, and they would stratify people based on looking at a number of things. They want to look at the severity of symptoms, whether or not there's hypotension, whether or not they have COPD, if they have a solid which is a low-risk situation tumor versus a more high-risk situation, which would be your hematologic malignancies, whether they've had fungal infections in the past, and if they are older than, than 60 years. So if you're going to use the mask, you can find calculators online, and you can calculate a score. And if the score is 21 or less, they are low-risk. Having said that, that's just the beginning. There's a really good and, again, authoritative paper that just came out this year from the American Society of Clinical Oncology, and they defined some really stringent guidelines for who they would and wouldn't treat as an outpatient. They looked not only at the mask or the clinical scoring system, but they, they also looked at host factors. The person has to live you know, within a reasonable transportation time to the hospital. They need to be able to get back for follow-up the next day and have no other significant comorbidity. So it's very complicated. At the end of the day, you may find that you want to send home somebody and the consultant or their, their primary treating physician does not want to do that. So you should score them. You should look for reasons to keep them in if you can. And if you're considering outpatient talk to the primary physician. Uh, the outpatient regimens are pretty straightforward. You can give them clavulin, amoxicillin clavulinic acid for uh, at a dose of 875 twice a day. Plus you have to add on a quinolone and Cipro is probably the quinolone of choice because it's got some pseudomonas coverage. And you want to treat for as long as they're going to be neutropenic generally. But these people really need early follow-up. Okay, so just to review the scoring system there, the low-risk factors are no or very mild symptoms, no hypotension, no COPD, that they have a solid tumor rather than a hematologic tumor, that there's no history of previous fungal infection, and the age is less than 60. So those are considered the low-risk patients, and in those patients you may want to consider outpatient therapy with clavulin plus Cipro. With regards to sending home patients with febrile neutropenia from the eMERGE on oral antibiotics, it's in my practice where I've worked at both a busy community hospital and a downtown teaching hospital that has not been common practice for our eMERGE physicians to make the decision themselves to send patients home on oral antibiotics. These patients are generally referred to the oncologist or internal medicine person on call after having had their first dose of antibiotics by the eMERGE doc. I know there are you know, well-publicized guidelines for low-risk patients and outpatient treatment, but I think that if you're going to be doing that, you need to have a pretty organized protocol in your place and, and be fairly familiar with it and have the backup of the oncologist or the, the people that are following these patients as outpatients. I agree completely.
So that's all we're going to say about febrile neutropenia in the cancer patient. Let's move on to our second type of presentation, and that is shortness of breath. So here's the case. A 66-year-old man with a history of lung CA and COPD comes into your ED at 9 p.m. on a Saturday night complaining of shortness of breath with an O2 sat of 89% on room air. He's had increasing shortness of breath on exertion as well as P&D and orthopnea over the last two weeks. He says that he's been waking up every morning with swollen eyelids and he complains of a vague feeling of fullness in his face. He's also had a mild but persistent headache for the last three days without any neurologic complaints. He's had no change in his cough, no sputum production, no fever, no chest pain, and no ankle swelling. On exam, other than his O2 sat of 89% on room air, his vitals are normal. He appears in no apparent distress, but does appear to be a bit drowsy. His face, including his eyelids, look normal in appearance, despite the patient swearing up and down that his face feels full and swollen. His chest is clear to auscultation, his JVP is elevated, but he has no peripheral edema. So Dr. Foote, besides the usual COPD exacerbation, pneumonia, and CHF that we often see in these types of patients, what other diagnoses should we be considering in the cancer patient who presents with shortness of breath? And in particular, what diagnosis do you suspect in this patient? The special issues with the cancer patient, having a malignancy puts you at independent high risk for a pulmonary embolus. So this patient could easily have a pulmonary embolus. This patient has lung cancer, so there could be tumor burden in the lungs themselves causing pleural effusion or tumor itself causing the shortness of breath. There could be some an issue of airway obstruction. I don't hear that in this story. And of course, in undifferentiated dyspnea, I think we should all be thinking of pericardial effusion. In particular, in malignant patients with a malignancy, especially a chest malignancy, they have a high rate of having a pericardial effusion, which, short of having full-blown tamponade, can still present with some dyspnea. A lot of us are trained now to do basic bedside ultrasound, and using our bedside ultrasound probe to detect a pericardial effusion would be an important initial step in this patient. And then finally, in this patient in particular, in oncology patients with, with a facial edema and dyspnea, you should be thinking about superior vena cava syndrome. When it comes to cancer patients who present with chest pain or shortness of breath without any obvious cause, most of them are PERC positive, and if you did a D-dimer on them, they would almost all have elevated D-dimers. Do all cancer patients who present with chest pain or shortness of breath without an obvious cause need a CT to rule out PE? Anton, that's a very good question, and I don't believe there are any specific guidelines about this. And when I ask oncologists about this, I get a different answer from every one of them. In reality, um, of course, these patients are at high risk for pulmonary embolus, and their age alone makes the, the likelihood of D-dimer being elevated in the malignancy. So I don't even bother ordering a D-dimer in a patient like this. I would say I would take it on a case-by-case basis. A lot of the times, I know at an academic institution, when these patients get admitted at some point in the first 24 hours, they will get a CT to rule out pulmonary embolus because I don't think you can reliably rule one out on a clinical grounds unless there's a very obvious reason for their worsening shortness of breath. For example, if you had a chest x-ray from two weeks ago and you have a new one today which shows you know half the lung is whitened out by a new pleural effusion, I think you probably don't need to order a Um, a CT chest on that patient. If there's an obvious fever, a high fever, I would think, again, you probably don't need to. But if the treatments you're providing are not working and you don't have an obvious cause, I would think that this is the type of patient where you would have to think of a pulmonary embolus. 
and either start impaired treatment with anticoagulants and order a CT. I have talked to some oncologists who have said, yes, these patients often have PE, but they said the patients that are near death or palliative care patients, they have to die of something and they don't even go looking for it. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I think it has to be taken on a case-to-case basis, but I think there are some oncologists who have that philosophy. So Dr. Foote, you had mentioned superior vena cava syndrome. This patient had swollen eyelids and they were complaining of fullness in their face. This is something you want to consider in any patient who has cancer and shortness of breath who's complaining of face fullness or, or eyelid swelling. Can you just go over for us what superior vena cava syndrome is and what causes it? Superior vena cava syndrome is obstruction, either acutely or subacutely, of the superior vena cava, either by a thrombus or by a tumor itself. Usually those are the two main causes, and as such will cause the symptoms you might intuitively think of, which would be facial edema. There's a different array of symptoms depending on how quickly it happens. The number one cause is cancer, and that's what's written in textbooks, although newer evidence would indicate that thrombus from intravascular devices, central lines, pick lines, portacaths, even pacemaker wires can cause and be an independent predisposition for SVC syndrome. And obviously if the SVC syndrome is due to a thrombus, there will be different treatment than if it is due to tumor itself, extrinsic compression. I think we need to be aware of its existence as eMERGE docs and sometimes the subtle presentation and we need to initiate workup and entertain the diagnosis as to the specific treatment that's going to be chosen. I don't necessarily know if we have to be the ones to decide that because I think it will depend on your institution and the type of people you have available, whether it's an interventional radiologist, etc. Okay, you had mentioned a subtle presentation. Can you just go over for us sort of the spectrum of presentation of this? You had mentioned that some of them present acutely, some of them are more subacute, and some of them are okay. subtle, and some of them are full-blown. Just give us an idea of, of sure. how they might present on, on, on the spectrum. I will usually make the diagnosis when, I, when somebody says to me, oh, my face feels puffier. And one pearl or pitfall I would make is that a lot of times when I'm meeting people, I can't tell what they normally look like. And they don't look grossly edematous to me, and they don't have puffy eyes. But, but I would caution you to take the patient's word for it or the family member's word for it. If they said their face is, face is puffy, you've never met them before, I would take them at their word that they probably are and err on that side and then initiate the investigations here, which would be usually a chest x-ray initially, usually followed up by a CT chest with um, neck. So the symptoms can be very subtle. The most common would be um, facial or neck swelling. Sometimes it can be positional. I've seen patients who get um, facial flushing with just light walking that they didn't used to have. There can be arm swelling as well. You can be unilateral or bilateral. Dyspnea is another common presentation or symptom, and cough as well. If the classic picture that you may see, if this, you Google the image of superior cava syndrome, you will see a picture of a person with the dilated superficial veins above the nipples and the neck. That usually happens if the SVC obstruction has happened subacutely and there's been time for collaterals on the skin and the azagous veins to, to compensate. So those are usually quite obvious. Obviously, you have to examine the patient properly and you know, take off their gown and take off their turtleneck sweater to see that. So that would be the sort of the classic one. The one thing I would mention is that most of the time when I see these cases, they don't happen suddenly and that they, there's usually a bit of time to make the diagnosis if they have facial edema alone. Another physical maneuver that you may see in textbooks or maybe on a, an exam type question, there's a, a maneuver called Pemberton's, it's called Pemberton's sign, 
which is a physical sign where when you lift the arm above your head or our shoulder, um, you'll actually cause further edema or redness of the face and further distension of the, fa of the face and dilatation of the vein that's called Pemberton sign. And if you actually Google Pemberton sign, you'll actually be able to see some netter pictures of the... Um, and that, that, just by looking at that picture, that will explain everything. The worrisome signs that we want to pick up would be if there's actually a change in sensorium, if they have CNS symptoms, or if there's um, any issue, pending issues with their airway, if they have hoarseness or prominent respiratory symptoms, and those are ominous signs that they could be having raised ICP or some laryngeal or airway edema from the SVC syndrome. But I, I do, do not personally see that often. Usually there's a fair bit of time for presentation to get the needed studies to confirm the diagnosis and initiate treatment. The reason we care about making this diagnosis in these patients is the fact that some of these patients can go on to get serious CNS problems, serious airway problems, and the ones that end up having a thrombotic cause for it can actually embolize and get PE. That's why we need to know this. It's not because uh, we're necessarily worried about their face being puffy itself. All right, so some of these things we want to look for on physical exam are Pemberton sign. You want to look at the upper chest to see if there's vein collaterals, which would indicate that it's not so acute that it's more of a subacute process. Let's move on to the workup for these patients. Dr. Foote, you had mentioned about chest x-ray and CT. Dr. Yaffe, could you tell us a little bit more about how these patients should be worked up and how good chest x-ray is? You know, at the end of the day, this is really a simple one. The, the test of choice is CT, uh, and it has to be contrast-enhanced CT. Um, there are some signs on the contrast-enhanced CT that are very specific and sensitive. Chest X-ray, you're going to get an abnormality of some kind, and the vast majority, maybe 85%, but it's pretty nonspecific. So you're really going to need the CT for diagnosis. The classic CT finding is if you see collateral vessels on a contrast-enhanced CT, that's very very diagnostic, but you may see the specific anatomical abnormality as well. So let's say we've done RCT, we've diagnosed someone with superior vena cava syndrome. Let's say you have a patient who's really quite sick with this. How would you manage the patient on an emergency basis? It's really important to reemphasize the vast majority of patients with SVC syndrome are going to be fine. This is a slowly progressive, non-emergent situation. So for most people, you're going to have them sitting upright, give them some oxygen. Probably we should be looking for a lower extremity venous access. But beyond that, you don't have to do too much. If you get a really sick patient, then you're into a bit of a potentially very serious situation. And the big issues are airway and cerebral edema. Uh, and these are the ones where you may not have a whole bunch of time to fool around. So if you get somebody who's got strider from either laryngeal edema or obstruction, or who has a alteration level of consciousness that you think is from cerebral edema, uh, these are the people who will probably benefit from emergency endovascular stenting, followed by emergency radiotherapy. In general, people have talked about using both diuretics and steroids in some of these people. Most of the malignancies that people have that would cause SVC syndrome will not be steroid responsive, but you may want to give steroids to people who are going to go for emergency radiotherapy. Uh, diuretics have been mentioned, not a lot of good evidence. I wouldn't concentrate on that as, a, as something that's going to change somebody from a really sick patient to a well patient. Okay, so in terms of medications, 
dexamethasone diuretics are something to be considered probably in conjunction with the oncologist? Yeah, if it's the local practice that you give them, fine. I think you can't rely on them to really make a big change. And in diuretics, if a person's already volume depleted, you're probably not going to be doing them any favors. But if it's the practice of your local institution, that's fine. It's just unlikely to make a huge difference. Okay. Or I guess in the patient where you just need to throw the typewriter at them when they're they're really, really sick and you need to do something that's... Yeah. While you're throwing consider. the typewriter, get them definitively treated, which is way more sophisticated than that. At this point in the episode, I'd like to put in Dr. Yaffe's best case ever, which won't be on the website otherwise. Dr. Foote gave us a best case ever as well, which we're going to put on the website. This is Dr. Yaffe's best case ever when it comes to oncologic emergencies. It's a great one. So I think maybe this case should be called my most obscure case ever, but nonetheless, a really important lesson for me. Uh, so a patient came to our hospital with anemia that had been diagnosed a couple of months earlier. She had received a couple of transfusions and presented again feeling unwell and was anemic. Seen by the eMERGE physician, seen by the internist, seen by the hematologist, was transfused in our department and sent home for follow-up. She was ultimately diagnosed with lymphoma, at which point a whole flurry of emails emanated from people working in the blood bank. And what had happened was this woman had been given a transfusion with normal red cells. And once the diagnosis of lymphoma was picked up, it was realized that patients with malignancies, specifically hematologic malignancies, are supposed to get irradiated blood cells, and hers were not. So it turns out that if you take a, a significantly immunocompromised host who has a malignancy, and specifically a heme malignancy, and give them non-irradiated blood cells, uh, they're at risk for developing transfusion-associated graft-versus-host disease, and it turns out that transfusion-associated graft-versus-host disease is pretty well uniformly fatal. Fortunately, the risk tends to be low, but uh, I think the message for us is that we need to know that patients with malignancies who need to be transfused uh, need to be given irradiated blood products. Generally, you know, your blood bank, if they know your patient, will know they need to do this and you don't need to get involved. But uh, for, for those of us who may be working in community hospitals uh, where a patient who's unknown to the system comes in, when you're going to be giving them blood products, and it can include red cells and platelets, they need to be given irradiated products to avoid this really rare but devastating complication. Uh, so what's the message for me? Well, the message is there's a lot of stuff out there for eMERGE physicians to know about that we just can't know about, but I think we need to be judicious in use of blood products and Every now and then, there is an obscure thing that you need to put in your back pocket for future reference. All right, let's move on to our third presentation, and that is the cancer patient with altered mental status. So here's the case. We've got a 72-year-old woman with a known history of multiple myeloma who presents to your ED with one week of increasing confusion, weakness and pain all over. 
Today, her family was unable to get her out of bed, and so they brought her to the ED. Due to her altered mental status, there's limited history otherwise. The family tells you that she's booked to see a palliative care specialist the following week. The family administers oral morphine for her pain, and she hasn't changed her dose recently. On exam, she appears unwell, but in no apparent distress. Her vitals are normal, except for a heart rate of 115. Her GCS is 12, pupils are equal and reactive, and a cursory neurologic exam shows no focal neurologic deficit. Her initial labs come back with a normal white count, a hemoglobin of 78, an elevated corrected calcium, and an elevated BUN and creatinine with a low anion gap. Dr. Foote, what are some of the key diagnoses that you consider in the cancer patient with altered mental status besides the usual causes of altered mental status that we think about in the general population? When I'm thinking of altered mental status, I like to think of causes directly in the brain themselves. So structural things in the brain and then systemic issues. And so in this case, if you look at things in the brain, specifically in oncology patients, you can have metastases, you can have raised ICP. Systemic things would include electrolyte problems like hyponatremia. The severe dehydration or liver failure in a patient like this could cause altered mental status. Specific to this case, though, and for metabolic issues, I would mention hypercalcemia in a patient like this. Hypercalcemia is a cause of anywhere from just mild fatigue to full-on coma. And it certainly could be the cause here. Finally, another rare, quite rare um, syndrome in, in oncology patients, and specifically in myeloma patients who have often lots of circulating proteins, hyperviscosity syndrome can cause altered mental status in, in a patient like this. A lot of these patients are on many medications, and uh, medication interactions are just the, a lot of them are on opioids or sedative medications that can obviously um, cause a CNS depression. Dr. Yaffe, we're all familiar with the high anion gap metabolic acidosis and the mud piles mnemonic. This patient has a low anion gap, which depending on your lab may be defined as below 6 or below 12. What are some of the causes of a low anion gap? For an anion gap to be low, we're talking really low. Like some people say it's not low unless it's less than 3. The difficulties with anion gap is that there are big variations between analyzers. In one study, they kind of looked at anion gaps, and of the people who are identified as having abnormally low ones, in 95% of them, when they rechecked it, it wasn't low. So if you see a low anion gap, it's probably a lab error. But if it's persistently low, then things you want to consider are paraproteins, as in multiple myeloma, so, and specifically IgG paraproteins, Hypoalbuminemic patients can have abnormally low anion gaps, and certain cation ingestions, lithium and magnesium, if they haven't kind of ingested an anion as well. Specifically in multiple myeloma, I have to say, even though everybody mentions it, it's unlikely that the low anion gap is going to be the the thing that's going to make the diagnosis or push you in that direction, because there's usually by the time they present, there's other things going on. And can you outline for us the key findings of multiple myeloma and what emergencies these patients commonly present with? Yeah, good. Perfect timing because so the the anion gap may be low, but there's other things. And so common presentations, first presentations of multiple myeloma are anemia, very high percentage, bone pain, renal dysfunction, close to half at the time of presentation will have some renal dysfunction. And then people can be just generally weak, fatigue, weight loss, those are the, that's kind of the constellation 
uh, of symptoms that pe- and signs that people present with. The emergent issues, hypercalcemia, which is actually about a quarter of people can have that at first presentation. People might have cord compression from bone pain. That's pretty rare. We talked about renal failure, infections, and hyperviscosity syndrome, which was mentioned is extremely rare. Okay. Let's get into talking a little bit more about hypercalcemia. About one-third of patients with hypercalcemia have cancer, and as you mentioned, about a quarter or up to one-third of patients with cancer will develop hypercalcemia. 50% of patients with cancer and hypercalcemia will be dead within a month, so this is a pretty serious finding. Multiple myeloma does have a predilection for hypercalcemia more than most cancers. So Dr. Foote, in which patients in general would you suspect hypercalcemia? You've already mentioned a bit about when we were talking about nausea and vomiting, so patients with decreased appetite who have nausea, who are generally feeling weak. Are there any more sort of specific findings that would tip us off to whether the patient might have hypercalcemia or not? So in general, any patient who has a history of cancer um, within the last five years, if they come in with vague symptoms, vague constitutional symptoms, it could be just fatigue, anorexia, mild headache, I will usually think to order a calcium on these patients. I know that um, when, when, when I'm called to see patients and follow up in their clinics, a calcium is ordered on all these patients routinely because it can be a very insidious and non-specific presentation. I have frequently missed hypercalcemia on patients who come in with very non-specific symptoms that they emerge. Usually um, they, they are elderly patients with no prior history of a malignancy and they end up having, in retrospect, a malignancy and hypercalcemia and probably had it when I saw them. So it doesn't mean that I think you need to order a serum calcium on every fatigued patient or anorexic patient in the eMERGE, but the older they are and the more likely that they've had a, a cancer in their history, I'd have a low threshold in ordering a serum calcium in those patients. We all remember the mnemonic stones, bones, abdominal moans, and psychic groans from medical school. Just to remind you what that's all about is stones refers to nephrolithiasis, bones refers to bony pain or pathologic fractures, although most hypercalcemia occurs without bony mets. Abdominal moans refers to anorexia, constipation, and abdominal pain that a lot of these hypercalcemic patients get. And then psychic groans refers to altered mental status, which can be depression, delirium, or decreased level of consciousness. We had mentioned in our back pain episode when we talked about mets to the spine that hypercalcemia can also present with polyuria and polydipsia, much like hyperglycemia can. Next, Dr. Foote's going to talk about the differential diagnosis of hypercalcemia. The most common malignancies that are associated with hypercalcemia tend to be myeloma, lung cancer, renal cancer, and breast cancer. They tend to be ones that also can metastasize to the bone, although even though it's counterintuitive, most of the time hypercalcemia is not due to direct bony mats, it's due to a parathyroid-like hormone that the tumor secretes. So in this episode, we're talking about cancer patients. Could you just remind our listeners what some of the other causes of hypercalcemia are? I think the the two that you really need to know, because life is simpler when there's two or three things that would be cancer, and the other one is a parathyroid adenoma. So in most of these patients, when you see them, there's no established malignancy, you will send off a parathyroid hormone level, which certainly will not come back on your shift. Dr. Yaffe, we've established that the symptoms of hypercalcemia are pretty nonspecific. Sometimes the ECG can be a clue to the presence of hypercalcemia. Can you just review for our listeners 
what the ECG findings you'd expect with a patient with hypercalcemia are? The common ECG finding that, that you're going to see in hypercalcemia is a short QT, uh, corrected QT interval. It would be less than 350 milliseconds. And that practically is it. There's case reports describing V-fib and pseudo-myocardial infarction patterns. I have to say, I've never seen that. And uh, when you look at the literature, all of these other things are rare enough that I think probably not worth spending a lot of effort on. So the key to diagnosing hypercalcemia on the ECG is the short QT, corrected QT, that would be less than 350. Can you just remind our listeners what some of the other causes of a short QT are? The significance of of using the cardiogram in triggering us to think about hypercalcemia is that really there's not that many conditions that cause a shortened QT interval. So DIG toxicity can do it, but usually in that situation, you're going to have other findings and the very rare congenital short QT syndrome can do it as well. But in general, our thinking, if you spot the short QT, should be to start thinking about hypercalcemia. So most of us have heard of congenital prolonged QT syndrome, but what's this congenital short QT syndrome? This is a pretty rare familial disease that's just been recently discovered, but it is important to know because it can cause sudden cardiac arrest. It can present with syncope or just with palpitations, and it's usually in otherwise healthy young people. So it is worth knowing about. Dr. Foote, once you've discovered that a patient does have hypercalcemia, first, how high is high? In other words, at what level of serum calcium should we expect patients to have symptoms and when do we need to act fast to correct the hypercalcemia? So in Canada, an elevated calcium level above three, um, and I, I know that you're supposed to correct for the albumin and get a pH corrected ionized calcium, but in my opinion, even though a lot of oncology patients have low albumins, the ones that are symptomatic that you need to know about it, even if you don't correct it, usually the calcium level is above three millimoles per liter. Those are the ones that usually have symptoms, and those are the ones we really want to catch and treat. Dr. Foote, you had mentioned the corrected calcium that you have to correct for albumin, and that might not even be that accurate to the true calcium level in the serum. Dr. Yaffe, how should we be interpreting the plain serum calcium that we order? Do we need to correct it? If we do correct it, how should we correct it? Do we need to be ordering a serum ionized calcium? How do we interpret all these different kinds of calcium? Okay, so serum calcium has two components. When you measure a total serum calcium, uh, you get a, um, a free ionized portion, and that's the physiologically active one. That's the one we really care about. And then there's a portion that's bound to albumin. So your total calcium gives you both of those components. If your albumin is elevated, then you might get a high calcium level, but really the ionized calcium can be normal. And if your serum albumin is low, then you might get a, a normal total calcium, but in fact, the ionized portion, the active portion is elevated. So there may be situations where your total reading doesn't help you and you have to correct for the abnormal albumin. I think as John said, in a lot of cases, uh, it's not gonna be that applicable, but there may be some when it's important. The difficulty is that all of our guidelines for treatment are really based on total calcium measurements. So it gets a little bit complicated to try for us, for eMERGE folks, to try to make decision-making based on ionized levels. I think if you're going to be doing all these tests, it's probably pretty easy to order an albumin when you're ordering your calcium. 
and then plug it into a calculator. There's all kinds of online calculators to correct for the albumin, and it doesn't really take that long to correct for your albumin and then make your decisions on that basis. One thing that you might want to be aware of, and it's hard for us as emergency physicians to know what to do with it, there are some patients with multiple myeloma that can actually have a paraprotein that binds calcium, and you'll get this pseudo-hypercalcemia picture. Hopefully in those patients, this has already been described uh, before they get to you when they've been diagnosed. Uh, but if you get a really weird calcium level that doesn't fit with their symptoms, you may want to ask the question. The important thing is that you might get a calcium that doesn't impress you that much. You think it's a little bit high, but when you correct it, you find out it's really high. Like it's more serious than what you thought. So the bottom line in terms of interpreting serum calcium is that probably for the emergency doctor, in most cases, all you need is a total serum calcium. However, in patients with multiple myeloma, they may have a pseudo-hypercalcemia, so you have to be careful in those patients. And in patients who you suspect their albumin might be super low, if they're really cachectic, if they're really malnourished, you may want to do an albumin as well and then correct for the calcium based on that. Okay, so we've talked about uh, how to identify patients with hypercalcemia, how to interpret the lab when it comes to hypercalcemia. Let's move on to treatment. Dr. Yaffe, pretty much all hypercalcemic patients are dehydrated due to their polyuria and they're often vomiting. We used to treat hypercalcemia with big bolses of normal saline combined with furosemide to get rid of the calcium through the kidneys, but things have changed over the last 10 or 15 years or so. How should hypercalcemia be treated in 2013? So the approach to hypercalcemia should really be to tailor your treatment according to the degree of symptoms and the degree of hypercalcemia. So you have to look at both of them. You know, there's a point at which you're going to treat regardless. So levels over three and a half require aggressive treatment. But once you're under that level, you're going to look at the degree of elevation in the symptoms. So that somebody with mild hypercalcemia who's got no symptoms, they could be hydrated, they don't need that much. When you get into the symptomatic, severely symptomatic, significantly hypercalcemic patients, you know, patients with corrected levels over 3.5 millimoles per liter, your first line is to replace your circulating volume with saline. By the time they present, they can be significantly behind, so they could need several liters of fluid doesn't have to be given all at once, but they, you want to restore a circulating volume. We don't want to make them hypervolemic. We want to just achieve euvolemia and then continue to give them fluid so that you maintain a urine output at 100 to 150 cc's an hour. I mean, you want to recognize that that the hypercalcemia itself is a stimulus to, for ongoing diuresis. So they should have a decent urine output in that phase. The benefits of that are twofold. One is you improve organ perfusion globally, but this also helps to help the body excrete the high levels of calcium. So in a lot of people, you give them a lot of fluids and you go back and see them in a while and they're remarkably better. The second line treatment, and especially in severe hypercalcemia, you're going to be using a bisphosphonate. Bisphosphonates have a delayed onset of action so you're really not going to see much happening for the first 24 hours. 
but they're going to be need to be given in severe situations and you may as well get them on board. The agent that you're going to pick is going to depend on the agents that people in your community are using. We tend to use pimidronate and the dose can vary depending on the, on the height of the hypercalcemia between 60 and 90 milligrams and it has to be given over a couple of hours. If your institution has a different drug, that's fine. There's a, there's a few other ones that are, are equally efficacious. I think one of the things that should be noted, while bisphosphonates can be tolerated in some degrees of renal impairment, when renal impairment is significant, you really have to be cautious and may want to get some advice. So, you know, when you get creatinines over 400 that aren't responsive to saline infusions, you need to be cautious about bisphosphonates. And you really do have time to decide about these things, so that's one situation where you may want to hold off. The other drug that you need to talk about is calcitonin. So bisphosphonates inhibit osteoclast-mediated bone resorption, and calcitonin is another inhibitor of osteoclast function. It's weaker than a bisphosphonate, but it acts more quickly. So in severe hypercalcemia, where you're not getting a good response to your saline, uh, you could consider adding calcitonin. The dose is about four international units per kilogram. You give it subcutaneously, and you may have to re-administer it in 12 hours, but its effectiveness kind of uh, drops off over time. There's tachyphylaxis. Most patients that I see, the vast majority have not needed calcitonin, but it's one of the things that you might want to consider in patients that aren't responding. And the other thing to talk about is hemodialysis, which really is a kind of a last ditch thing. So in patients who may not be able to tolerate or aren't responding to saline infusions, either because they've got severe renal failure or because they've got congestive heart failure, you may have to look to dialysis to get these patients over the hump and, and to lower their serum calcium levels. I've never had to do that, but as with most cases of emergency dialysis, you need to know when to ask for it sooner rather than waiting till your patient's crashing. So again, in recap, the big one really is, is saline, 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 and then adding on a bisphosphonate and considering calcitonin in those really refractory cases. I can remember when I started my residency, we were using furosemide in, the, in these patients. Could you just give us a quick synopsis of why we should not be using furosemide in these patients? So the idea behind furosemide was that somehow you were going to stimulate a calcium diuresis by giving furosemide. You know, there was a paper a few years ago that actually looked at this, and there was really no literature to support it. And it really adds another level of complexity in, in managing these patients. So as with many things in medicine, uh, less is more. So if you don't need it, don't use it. I think there may be a role of furosemide in patients who have congestive heart failure, who you've inadvertently made hypervolemic or have volume overload. But other than that, routinely not indicated. So just a quick review here of hypercalcemia. Remember that about one-third of patients with hypercalcemia have cancer, and about one-third of patients with cancer will develop hypercalcemia. How do these patients present? Well, it's often an insidious onset, and often the diagnosis is actually made incidentally. However, if you do have a patient with a history of cancer plus altered mental status, you need to think of hypercalcemia. These patients may have stones, bones, abdominal moans, and psychic groans, as well as polyuria and polydipsia. 
The other big diagnosis besides cancer to think about in patients who you discover have hypercalcemia is primary hyperparathyroidism. So for patients who don't have cancer, you might want to order a PTH. The diagnosis of hypercalcemia also might be picked up on the ECG with a short QTC of less than 350. While the normal range for calcium in Canada is somewhere between 2.2 and 2.6 millimoles per liter, once you get above about 3, then you start to get symptoms, and once you get above 3.5, you get more severe symptoms and it becomes an emergent situation. While most of the time you can rely on your total serum calcium to direct your treatment, in patients who have malnutrition, who are really cachectic, you might want to consider doing an albumin to correct your calcium accordingly. In terms of treatment, the first line is fluids, 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 and after that you should be considering a bisphosphonate like pomidronate or zeledronate, and also calcitonin. Remember not to give thiazides to patients with hypercalcemia or that will worsen the condition. Furosemide is pretty much out in terms of treatment of hypercalcemia, except if the patient is fluid overloaded, and in those patients with severe renal failure or CHF, you probably want to avoid bisphosphonates and instead call your dialysis unit. Next, we're going to talk about another cause of altered mental status in a cancer patient, and that is hyperviscosity syndrome. So hypercalcemia is one of the more common causes of altered mental status in the cancer patient that we need to think about. The other cause that was mentioned a bit earlier for altered cancer patients that's more rare but important to recognize is hyperviscosity syndrome. So Dr. Foote, what is hyperviscosity syndrome and how can we pick it up in the ED and look like rock stars? Anton, I will make the confession that I have never knowingly diagnosed a case of this or seen a patient that had this that I've made the diagnosis. Nor I. <laughs> but I do know that this is something that's in every textbook and obviously is a, is a known entity. And I think we should still be, as a merch doc, should still be aware of its existence. And obviously for you, if we're still writing exams or certifying exams, you should also be aware that, you know, occasionally it could be on an examination as a topic. The, the way I think of hyperviscosity syndrome in oncology patients is you will generally see it in patients that have either a large amount of white blood cells in their, in their circulation, like the leukemias, and generally they end up, end up having white cells over 200 in the high hundreds. And then finally, the patients with myeloma are, are protein-secreting tumors, the myeloma, the Waldenstrom, the macroglobinemia people. Those are the populations you primarily see it in, according to the books. And apparently there's a, you can order a, a, a serum viscosity on your patients. And normally our, our, our serum or our blood has a viscosity that's just a little bit more viscous than water and they measure it in centipoise. And apparently patients with hyperviscosity syndrome have centipoises in the four to six range. So four to six times more thick that or viscous than our normal blood, which intuitively that I can imagine that would cause some problems in your microcirculation. So the, the classic um, triad that people talk about in the syndrome would be um, mucosal bleeding, like epistaxis, um, hematuria, rectal, vaginal bleeding, um, gingival bleeding, visual disturbance, and then finally neurologic symptoms. So if you see that, that, that is the classic triad, but as we know in medicine, very few things present as classic triads, especially a, a rare thing like this. I think the thing we need to know about the most would be the, the neurologic symptoms in a patient with hyperviscosity, that if you've got a, a mentally altered oncology patient, particularly one with leukemia 
or uh, myeloma and all of your other workup is coming back negative, like CT head, LP, metabolic workup, think of hyperviscosity syndrome. One of the clues that you'll have because of this hyperviscosity syndrome when the, when the lab samples are being processed, because they're four times more viscous and the serum when you're doing, the lab will actually call you and well, there'll be a delay getting your labs back in these patients. And if you call the lab and say, what's happening? They'll say, well, we can't really process these samples because they're so viscous and they won't work on our machines. That should maybe tip you off that there's, that would probably be the thing I think realistically that most people would um, maybe clue into. They also do talk about rouleau, which if you want to remember the, the smear can sometimes have rouleau in the, that's classically described in these patients. And to remember, remind what rouleaux are, is basically stacked red blood cells like coins on top of each other because of the, the sticky proteins. Okay, great. So generally speaking, patients with leukemia or high protein load cancers who present with altered mental status, they may also have some bleeding from mucosal sites. And if you have a patient like this and you can't get the lab results back because then you speak to the lab people and they say they can't process the blood or their white count does come back way, way, way high, these are the people that you want to think about this diagnosis. In. Correct. In terms of the cancer patient with altered mental status, we've talked about hypercalcemia. We've talked about this rare hyperviscosity syndrome. Another important cause of altered mental status in the cancer patient that we need to know about and we need to recognize and manage is raised ICP with or without cerebral herniation, which can be caused by a primary or a secondary tumor. It can be caused by bleeding, hydrocephalus, abscess, or any other space-occupying lesion. These patients with cancer tend to be at higher risk than the general population of getting raised ICP. When we have a cancer patient in whom we suspect raised ICP, we get a plain CT, which is great at picking up things like bleeds. Uh, but brain mets often don't show up on plain CT, so you often need to get a CT with contrast to pick up the brain mets. When do you pull the trigger to get a CT with contrast in patients with cancer who present altered or with headache, or you suspect that there might be something there despite a plain CT? Yeah, the you know the imaging that you're going to choose depends on what you're looking for. I think if you're if you're looking at a patient in whom you suspect a mass lesion because there's neurologic features or because they've got an alteration in their level of alertness that's going to show up on to some degree on a on a plain CT. It may not give you all of the anatomic detail you need, but if a person's got an alteration in their level of consciousness because of a central lesion, I can't believe that a CT plain CT is going to be normal. You know, there's clearly times when you can miss mets on a plain CT. So, if somebody comes in with non-specific neurologic abnormalities with a clear sensorium, or headache, then they may need uh, evaluation with a contrast CT or with an MR, but the time pressure to make that diagnosis is usually not the same. So we don't often need to go for a contrast-enhanced CT or an MR in this population. I would completely agree. If you've got somebody who's in your comatose or really impaired, the CT should show you something, and it's reassuring when it doesn't. Does it rule out any CNS spread? No, of course not. But if I've got somebody with less worrisome symptoms that make me suspicious, I'll just enter a CT with and without contrast. Normally, the radio, you can talk to your radiologist and they'll do both. 
So Dr. Yaffe, let's say you've got a cancer patient who's altered and you suspect has raised ICP or an impending cerebral herniation. Let's say they're blowing a pupil right in front of you. How do you manage these patients in the emergency department? And how do you manage these patients differently than, say, a trauma patient with raised ICP? So I think there's less to guide us in this patient population than in trauma. I think currently people are still doing the following. You intubate and have some degree of hyperventilation. You want to avoid significant hypocarbia. So you could hyperventilate them to a PCO2 of 30. You really want to avoid hypotension in this population as in any patient population with raised ICP. So you may in fact need to give pressors if you're giving hypotensive agents. You want to fluid restrict them, consider mannitol. And if there's a significant tumor with some vasogenic edema, dexamethasone is given. There's not a lot of good evidence behind it, but it seems to be routine practice, doesn't have a lot of downside. And then you want to get some more definitive treatment. You want to be speaking to your your neurosurgeons, neurologists to decide what the next step is going to be. Okay, you had mentioned mannitol uh, to decrease the ICP. In trauma, some people are using hypertonic saline to decrease the ICP. Is there any evidence for hypertonic saline in the non-trauma patient? You know, all of the studies looking at hypertonic saline, the vast majority of these patients were trauma or were bleeds. So there's a more global brain injury involved. I think there was one patient with a brain tumor lumped into a whole bunch of them. So we, we don't have a lot to guide us. I don't know of anybody who's currently using hypertonic saline for a altered sensorium due to a brain tumor. Our standards tend to be steroids and intubation for level of alertness and maybe a little bit of gentle hyperventilation. There was a meta-analysis of randomized clinical trials comparing hypertonic saline versus mannitol for the treatment of elevated ICP that was in critical care medicine in March 2011. Now, this was based on a bunch of small studies, had 112 patients with 184 episodes of elevated ICP, and they weren't looking at clinical outcomes. They were just looking at control of ICP. But they did show that hypertonic saline was more effective than mannitol for the treatment of elevated ICP. Now, most of these patients were trauma patients and patients with bleeds. So we don't know if we can generalize this to cancer patients with elevated ICP. We're still waiting for a large multicenter randomized trial to definitively establish the first-line medical therapy for raised ICP. So those were some pearls about the cancer patient with altered mental status. Let's go on to our fourth presentation, and that is of a patient who presents with renal failure. The case is that of a 37-year-old man who presents with a three-day history of vague abdominal pain, vomiting, and numbness in the hands and feet. He has a history of CML diagnosed two months previously and was treated with chemotherapy three weeks ago. On exam, he looks unwell and lethargic, although his vital signs are stable. A cursory neurologic exam shows no focal neurologic deficit, and his belly is soft and non-tender, but slightly distended. While you're waiting for labs, the patient has a tonic-clonic seizure, which resolves with 2 mg of IV lorazepam. The routine labs with extended lights come back, and his creatinine is 305, 
potassium is 6.9, calcium is very low, and the phosphate is very high. You go back to the patient and you're able to elicit a positive Voshtek sign and Trousseau's sign. Dr. Yaffe, what are your thoughts in terms of the differential diagnosis in this patient with renal failure, hyperkalemia, and hypocalcemia, and how would you initially manage this patient? So the, the three can often and do often go together. So when you're looking at a renal failure patient, you should start with your basics, uh, pre-renal, renal, and post-renal. And I guess in this particular patient, I think we'll come back to some of the acute issues, but just, you know, I think it's important to remember that pre-renal failure is a really common cause in cancer patients. They've been vomiting often. There's other issues going on. There may be infection. There may be hypercalcemia. So you want to start off with volume to some degree. I just want to say a couple of things about post-renal. You know, not all patients with elevated creatinines just have a problem with, with their volume. Um, some of these patients will actually have bilateral ureteral obstruction from masses in the pelvis. And in those patients, Early imaging can be important because you may pick up something that uh, can be treated with nephrostomies and really affect the course of, of the condition. And then you get to the renal conditions. And, you know, renal, you can have infiltrating tumors, amyloidosis, uh, drugs. And, you know, in this patient, actually, with this constellation, uh, this could be tumor lysis syndrome. The potassium of 6.9 is quite serious, potentially life-threatening. So I think we need to shift this patient and we would give glucose and insulin. I think when we talk about emergency treatment of hyperkalemia, we also talk about calcium for its cardioprotective effect. In this particular scenario, this might be a situation where you want to consider holding off on the calcium for a little bit, depending on what the person's cardiogram looks like, uh, because giving calcium in somebody who may have tumor lysis syndrome can be fraught with problems because these people are also significantly hyperphosphatemic. So it can be a bit of a problem. If you need to give the calcium, give it. But I think the mainstay of really altering the potassium levels would be glucose and insulin. So it turns out that this patient with high potassium and high phosphorus with low calcium and acute renal failure did have tumor lysis syndrome. He was stabilized and he eventually needed dialysis. Dr. Foote, can you just explain to our listeners what tumor lysis syndrome is? So this is, again, much the same as hyperviscosity. This is in, you know, every textbook for emergency medicine as being an oncologic emergency, so we should be aware of its existence. So this is likely to happen in patients who have um, a large amount of cancer cells circulating in their blood, and um, these, if these cells suddenly explode... Um, you will get typical metabolic arrangements of cell lysis. You'll have hyperkalemia. You will often have hyperuricemia. So these cancer cells that are rapidly dividing uncontrollably in their nuclei are full of DNA. And if you remember that um, uric acid is a metabolic breakdown product of DNA, you'll remember that these guys will often have high levels of uric acid. The reason that is relevant is uric acid um, at very high levels can precipitate and block renal tubules and cause acute renal failure. So they, they can be a contributing factor and cause in tumor lysis syndrome that they, the renal failure will be made worse by the uric acid precipitating and blocking those microtubules. So the hydration is obviously key with these patients. Once you, once you identify this, you would think, well, maybe we'll give allopurinol. 
um, allopurinol is, is indicated in this situation. The problem with allopurinol is that if you think of how it works, it actually prevents the formation of uric acid. But in these patients, often they have preformed uric acid, so it will not actually help in this situation. There's a new drug that you probably should just be aware of its existence called Rasperacase. And it's an enzyme that essentially changes uric acid, which is um, not very soluble in water and precipitates as crystals. It converts it into a chemical that's far more water-soluble called allantoin. Allantoin is apparently five times more soluble and does not block the renal tubules. So that is the drug of choice now and is available and is a standard of care now for tumor lysis syndrome. And normally you'd see that, I guess, in a place where you see a large volume of oncologic patients principally ones with large hematologic burdens of, of cancer cells. My experience or lack thereof with tumor lysis syndrome is the same as John's, and I think this is really um, a testament to the fact that there is good preventive measures in oncologic care that really has made this entity largely disappear so that most people I know have never seen a case. And hopefully we never will, but I, I agree it's something we do need to know about. Everybody knows So tumor lysis syndrome comes about from this sort of explosion of cells from these high burden hematologic cancers. And the signs and symptoms relate to the underlying electrolyte and metabolic abnormalities. It's usually diagnosed when a post-chemo cancer patient has a constellation of hyperkalemia, hyperphosphatemia, and hypocalcemia with renal failure. The priority of management for these patients is to correct the potassium, but be careful using calcium in these patients, as Dr. Yaffe pointed out, and rasburicase is the medication of choice. Finally, you should be getting on the phone with your nephrologist in these cases to see whether these patients are a candidate for dialysis. Well, that almost wraps it up for this month's episode. Before we go, I'd like to leave you with the quote of the month from Gilda Radner, the comedian who was on Saturday Night Live back in the 70s. She died of cancer. The goal is to live a full, productive life, even with all the ambiguity. No matter what happens, whether the cancer never flares up again or whether you die, the important thing is that the days that you have had, you will have lived. Canada's largest emergency medicine conference is going to be held in Toronto, the North York General Hospital's updated emergency medicine. And that should be happening around the time of the release of this episode. We're going to have some great speakers there, Amal Matu, Walter Himmel, and a whole slew of experts from emergency medicine cases. So I hope to see you all there. So until next time, take it easy.